0: This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're incredibly fortunate. We have Mike McCoslin, founder and CEO of Leadership Institute for Entrepreneurs. Mike, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Bob. Excited to be here. And you're headed off to Nepal shortly. Yeah, about a week. Oh my. Well, if you would, tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve.
1: The Leadership Institute for Entrepreneurs is really focused on helping entrepreneurs all the way from what's a good business idea through launch, growth, scaling, exit. We call it the entrepreneurship journey from end to end. And of course, 99% of the population has no understanding of their purpose. And so understanding personal purpose should be tied to the kind of business that you're gonna do. Because if you don't love what you're doing, life can get very difficult in a business. Three to five years to create a sustainable business, a long time to commit your life to something you don't love doing. So we serve entrepreneurs on this end to end entrepreneurship journey. The other thing we're doing, and a lot more of, is launching local entrepreneurship ecosystems. So we live in Colorado Springs, I think is number nine. Denver's number five, the Denver-Boulder Corridor, in entrepreneurship ecosystems in the U.S. Our market's international, and so we're launching ecosystems all over the world. We actually have seven this year. Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, Nepal, Indonesia, Kenya, Jordan and a relational ecosystem in Rome, Italy, of a global network called Open.
0: I would love to take and get an ecosystem in my area. How do they go about getting you to come?
1: For us, it's a lot of relational networks. We've been all over the world. I ran a nonprofit that was in 150 countries over 15 years. We ended up shutting it down to move everything to for-profit operations because we just believe it's a better model. So the relational aspect is how we figure out where to go and how to help people but entrepreneurship ecosystems are a big focus worldwide today. Some of the leading players in that space, Kauffman Foundation, which many are aware of, but Kauffman just does the United States. They're in 180 cities. One Million Cups, maybe something you're familiar with, is one of their programs that they've produced. The Global Entrepreneurship Network works globally. There would be an example of a global group, Endeavor, is out there globally. The World Economic Forum is out there. But one of the big questions that people are trying to crack the code on is how do you create an entrepreneurship ecosystem and cause that economic engine to start growing. And of course, every mayor in the world in every city is interested. And ecosystems are very local. So you can't do a U.S. ecosystem. You can't do a continental ecosystem. It's a very local. As an example, Colorado Springs, Denver and Boulder are almost three different ecosystems within 100 miles of each other. So the ecosystem concept is a very local concept. We go where we already have relational networks and there is some kind of a community that has the pieces, but they're just not connected and functional.
0: For folks going, well, what journey did you go through to Uh-oh. get to where you are now? Well, it's
1: a big, a long story, but to make it very short, my background is I used to run nuclear power plants. So I was a licensed reactor operator and a senior reactor operator which focus so much on integrated operations. In the control room, you have 5,000 switches, dials, gauges that all work together. So I'm an operations person by heart, a visionary by love. And so I work very well with visionaries because I'm a visionary, but I'm a very operational person by training. That makes
0: you unusual. It
1: is unusual. And I know that. I'm always looking at how does it work lift up the hood? What really makes this thing work? And that led to Doing a lot of large-scale culture transformation and change management projects. I worked in the power utility industry to transform sites that had a 1,000 people from a union mentality to a competitive environment because the power utility was deregulating. Did companies up to 20,000 people. Did companies around the world. Again, integrated operations. Always had a heart to help people. And so we ended up going worldwide and doing a humanitarian organization. I like to say we found a thousand ways not to help people. (laughs) I think we did everything wrong, but finally landed on two things that were really sustainable. One was disaster preparedness and response, which is like business continuity of operations. And the other was job creation and business development. So we ended up doing... About 3,000 businesses in 40 countries achieved a 73% sustainability rate, but all micro small business. And we learned that that doesn't transform communities and societies. So we went looking for a different kind of a model that we could do fast grow scalable businesses. That's where I ended up going to MIT to train their materials on a systematic approach to entrepreneurship. So I'm a certified MITx entrepreneurship knowledge partner. We get to use their logo, when we're doing training. And so that's what brought us then around to ecosystems because we learned that the entrepreneurship journey has some core skill sets. The MIT approach is one of them. I'm kind of like scaling up the Rockefeller habits as an operational core competency or some of the training by Rocky Ventures Club up in Denver as core competencies for understanding business valuation and equity and capital raise. And so the entrepreneurship journey had all these pieces to it. And I'm a very holistic thinker as well. So that's where we evolved the entrepreneurship journey journey process. And then that led to the ecosystem because the entrepreneur is the core foundation of the ecosystem. But you can have individual entrepreneurs very successful, but not an ecosystem, where the ecosystem impacts the whole community. And from our humanitarian days, we were always looking at how do we transform a whole community in the development process to create sustainable solutions, bring people out of poverty, allow them to have access to the things that you and I take for granted, like healthcare and education and other things. So that entrepreneurship ecosystem is the foundation of that.
0: I think about Afghanistan, as a poster child. And so you go, perhaps there's a language barrier. And then I think about how do you go into a location like that and what's the baseline that you start with? What's the receivable for those guys?
1: Good question. And Afghanistan would be very different than Nepal, would be very different than Nairobi, Kenya, would be very different than Amman, Jordan. So each one is a little different of where we're launching. But what we look for as a template, number one, is what kind of network already exists and who's on the ground, because we always work to empower locals. We never want them to be reliant upon us. So it's all about sustainability in the local ecosystem. You begin to look at things that are core, like rule of law and contract negotiation and legal framework. Because if you don't have some of these core things, you can't build a collaboration, a community of collaboration and trust and cooperation. So there are some key components up front. Language barrier not necessarily a problem. The business language of the world in many cases is English. So there are people everywhere that do speak English. And then if we need translation... We can get that. We translate it into Russian and Kazakhstan. We'll translate it into Indonesian when we're in Indonesia. So the translation is not an issue. But the value that we bring to the community is the training, a certifying trainer so they can carry on the ground there without us, support to not only launch the ecosystem, but move it forward. Because just like a business startup, you can go to a class, but then how do you implement and so we've done a lot of network development all over the world where this is our fifth global decentralized viral growth network, but it always must be sustainable locally or you can't build globally. And what we do is we create framework, language, and structure for the local capability. And because the framework, language, and structure is the same all over the world, everybody can then connect and play together. When I say language, I don't mean local language. I mean, language like what does entrepreneur mean and what are the components of doing a business startup? If we learn those common terms and we all have the same language of discussing business, now all over the world, we can plug and play a global network.
0: And so on a framework establishment, what's the components of the framework?
1: So the framework that we've used, a fairly common knowledge tool is the business model canvas. Well, we actually took the business model canvas and modified it. So we have a modified business model canvas as the framework for all the components of not just launching and growing a business, but even other things. We added to it the whole front end component of who are you and what are your gifts and skills and talents and purpose and destiny. We call it identity driven entrepreneurship. So you launch a business that you love and it's in line with who you are. Many people get to the top of the success wall and find out we hate what we're doing. So we added that identity-driven priest to the business model canvas. We also added a whole component on operations because just figuring out what kind of business you want to launch, is it viable, sustainable, profitable, and scalable? Before you spend any money or commit your life to it, we teach that in the class. But then once you launch, you know you have a whole different set of problems. So we took all of that, and there's a lot of information there in the whole journey, and put it into a canvas that has two blocks, or 10 blocks, like the typical business model canvas, nine blocks. Some are expanded, but ours has 10. And that framework then gives a simplified overview of the end-to-end journey. Because when we start digging down into the actual blocks of the canvas, they can get very deep and have a lot of detail. And you need to pull back and see that whole framework to keep everything in context. But if you have that framework, and everybody has that framework, now we understand how to work together and how to contextualize. And what we very commonly find, both in entrepreneurship and in the ecosystem, is that a lot of people have a lot of pieces but they don't know how they fit together. That's very true in business. You could find somebody that's an expert in marketing, an expert in podcasts, an expert in financials. But there's many, many pieces that have to be fit together in an integrated fashion for the entrepreneurship journey to be successful. The same thing is true relative to an entrepreneurship ecosystem. The six domains that we look at, we created a model that's based on Daniel Eisenberg's work at Babson College, is to look at, Six domains in the entrepreneurship ecosystem, leadership and policy, culture, finance, the markets, the human capital, and the support services. So different people could be good in leadership or in policy or in governance. Some could be good in finances. Some could be good in understanding markets and market access. Some people could be good in training in human capital development like universities or like what we do with the Leadership Institute for Entrepreneurs. And then there's other people that provide support services like incubators and accelerators and fractional CFO and professional support services like marketing. But how do you connect all of those? How do you create flow of talent and resources across that whole system? Because when you get the flow going, that's where everybody starts benefiting and we can start taking the entrepreneurs, which are the core of the ecosystem, and helping them get the answers and the support they need at every stage of the entrepreneurship journey. And at different stages, I need different kinds of help.
0: Systems. It's interesting When you look at personality types, some folks are visionary, go, I can see it, I just can't do the details. Other folks are buried in the detail, can't see the vision. And I've lately become somewhat enamored with the notion of understand your exit before entry.
1: Mm, Absolutely true.
0: So if you have the endpoint in mind, then it makes the journey a little more purposeful.
1: And it's true not just with your company. It's true with you personally. And that's where 99% of the population breaks down. Less than 1% understand their purpose. Mark Twain, the two greatest days of your life, the two most important days of your life, the day you're born and the day you find out why. Investors, the first question they ask is, what's your exit strategy? But we should be asking entrepreneurs, what were you created to do before we go build and spend money and spend three to five years of our
0: life. Yeah, I have a friend that's in one of the agencies and said, we have a bunch of PhDs creating solutions and now they're in search of a problem. Mm-hmm. I was just on a wheat harvest here the past couple of days and watching the dance and simple things. The hopper's halfway full and when the hopper's full, you kind of got to stop the combine. And when the combine doesn't continue to operate, then you're delayed in the field. So how do you keep the dance going amidst all of the machinery? And what's the point? There's nothing worse Than the right solution to the wrong problem. In circling back, any of the countries, you have a network from your previous experience in all the nonprofits. And is there a champion in the local country that says, I think we want to bring you folks in to create this infrastructure? How does that process start or occur?
1: When you ask if there's a champion, yes, we're always looking for who's on the ground I make the statement that you can go all over the world, you can land anywhere in the world, and there's only a handful of people that get stuff done. We like to talk about the PhD and GSD, get stuff done. And so in that group on the ground, there's usually a handful that make things happen, and that's what you're looking for. There's two kinds of people in that mix. One are catalytic visionaries that cast the vision and people respond, and the other are operational architects that actually implement the vision and so there are two types of people and typically we look for where are those wed together where do we see both of them and ideally it's a group that's already functioning in nepal the great commission companies there's a group there that just have been working together for five or six years there's about 30 organizations I'm trying to figure out how to work together, bless the community, create sustainable income, and really be a blessing. And so that's a great group to work with. So they're hosting our event in Nepal. It's being funded by the McClellan Foundation and then being facilitated by the
0: Leadership Institute for Entrepreneurs. When your team arrives in the country, how many members are on your team when you arrive? It varies, typically two to three. As the launch events
1: are not that complex, they're three days. Day one is an entrepreneurship ecosystem discussion. And what we do is we kind of run through the playbook that the Kauffman Foundation has built. Why are entrepreneurs important? What is an entrepreneurship ecosystem? How do we create an ecosystem? And then how do we get started? It's really geared towards what we would call ecosystem builders. And anybody can be a builder, but who cares enough to want to do that for their community? And then we do two days of the disciplined entrepreneurship training, which is the MIT systematic approach. So not only do we provide a very practical training methodology, systematic approach to entrepreneurship for businesses, and we're looking at 80 to 100 participants in that training. But we also give them tools to take that training with our videos and facilitation manual, turn right around and train it the next day locally with the facilitation manual and the videos. And so we have a small team, but the events, not that complex, the challenge is walking it out and implementing it. That's why the support after the event is almost more important. Whenever you start a team project, you know you wanna get that team as excited as possible because you know there's a valley coming when you launch. It's the same thing in entrepreneurship. It's very up and down. You know, it starts
0: as a sprint and ends up being a marathon at the same speed. Yes. And I think about the disparate skill sets in 80 people. I mean, some are really good at A and some are good at B and some are good at C. And I think about you guys coming in with the MIT process. Where did MIT come up with or how did they arrive at this process? Good question. The author of the book Disciplined
1: Entrepreneurship, which is the process, 24 Steps to a Successful Startup by Professor Bill Owlett, comes off of 25 years and 25,000 startups at MIT. If you took their financial valuation or revenues out of those 25,000 startups, they'd be the 11th most wealthy nation on the planet. So they learned a lot of stuff, saw it over and over again, and then put that into the process. So it was from experiential learning of 25,000 startups.
0: Are they still teaching this? They are. But are they certifying people like you anymore? They're still
1: doing their global entrepreneurship boot camps, but they've only ever run two instructor Boot camps. And I was the second instructor boot camp in 2016. I think there's about 30 of us worldwide now that have that label of certified MITx entrepreneurship knowledge partner. I don't know if they'll do another one. It's been a couple of years.
0: You know, it's interesting. Academia has a checkered past in teaching people how to run businesses or can. And MIT is derived theirs from experience.
1: Well, one of the things I love about MIT, and I'm sure Harvard and Stanford and Yale and other universities have some great programs, but I love the practical application of what MIT has done. As a matter of fact, very interestingly, MIT is now doing these global startup labs. And there's one being run in Kathmandu while I'm there in a couple weeks. So we'll be interfacing with the professor at Kathmandu University, some MIT instructors that are there. But I love the fact that they do these boot camps to get into the very practical aspect of launching a business. Our boot camp is modeled after the MIT's boot camp. It's a five day experience. We go from seven in the morning to midnight every day, maybe longer, and pick a team, you pick an idea, and you build out a whole business in one week and present to judges, and real investors in one week. We call it the closest experience to a real life startup as you can get. The stress, the pressure, the long days, the long nights, the intensity. It's as close as you can get to what it really feels like. And MIT has been doing these boot camps now for a while and they're doing all kinds of them. I just love what they're doing on the practical side. And as an institution, an educational institution, I think they're doing wonderful things in that way.
0: When you finish a boot camp and you have your students on the other side, the day after, what are the typical comments that come out of these folks?
1: One of them is, if they've not been in business before, the typical comment is, now it seems doable. Now you've taken away the mystery. Now... I really believe I could do this. I thought I would just go start a business, and I never realized how many pieces there were. About two-thirds of the people that go through our training, not just our boot camp, but even our two-day disciplined entrepreneurship course, which is included in the boot camp, but it's broken out as a separate class. About two-thirds of the people that go through are experienced entrepreneurs, and we're running five out of five star rating across the board, 100%. The common statement from them is, I now see how the pieces fit together. There were pieces I understood well, but there were pieces I didn't understand. And now they all connect, make sense. And I know if I have a problem, I know exactly what's broken. Because most entrepreneurship is trial and error. Reading books, listening to people tell stories.
0: That sounds like a simple statement. I think about the quantity of people. I talked to some folks trying to do a fundraise the other day. And they talked about the history and they talked about the this and the, the, that and the investor. Look, this what's my return, period. And I think there's a real disconnect between the folks trying to raise the money and the folks trying to invest the money if they don't know any about. Her.
1: You know, that's a good observation, because when we launched the Leadership Institute for Entrepreneurs, we do everything we teach. So we did a pretty big market segmentation primary market research process, interviewed eight different segments of markets in the field that we were looking at, almost 100 people. And what I found was a very interesting phenomenon, which I didn't realize. And when you do your primary market research, if you're not surprised by what you learn, you probably didn't do enough. So we learned a very interesting thing, and that was lack of deal flow across all segments. And so then we started saying, why is that true? You've got all these people that have ideas, you've got all these people that have money, and there's no deal flow or a lack of. And so what we found was, as we started working with all the investors, angels and VC, what are you looking for? And we had a lot of statements like, we're looking for a million revenue, which is the magical VC number, and in this market segment. And I said, well, that doesn't tell us how to teach people to meet your expectation for a deal flow. And I struggled with investors trying to give me any guidance on what they were looking for in deal flow until I ran into Rocky Ventures Club up in Denver. So I can't say enough good things about my friends, Peter Adams and Dave Harris who run that. But what we learned was investors are looking for certain things. Your first question is, what's your exit strategy? And from there, there's many, many issues dealing with investors. The five things, especially upfront, team, product, market, market access, and traction. And where are you at in all that? And then organizations having a million ideas, but not really understanding anything about how to make that idea a reality. And how do you get to team, product, market, market access, and most importantly, traction? Don't even go looking for money. If you don't have a business idea that's already making some money, traction. And so most people think I'm going to go sell you an idea and you're going to invest in it. That's never going to happen unless you've gotten VC money before and then they'll throw it at you. But if you've never gotten it before, you'll never get angel investment VC money until you actually prove people will buy your product. And so there's a big disconnect between what investors are looking for, and what the startup is doing. And it's not about a business plan and an idea. It's about a functional business that's got some traction. Now there's a level of interest. And the growth rate of your traction, your year on year growth rate, all those things will make a big difference between you know, what your company is worth and what investors are willing to invest.
0: In your experience in teaching all of this, do you find this is taught in academia very much? Very rare. We used to jokingly say that once you've got a degree,
1: you've got a license to learn because now you get out in the real world and it just doesn't work the way you think it is. I mean, I could give you so many examples of problems. I'll give you one example of the biggest problem I see. An investor asks, what's your exit strategy? My first question I ask in helping a business is, who is your customer? And by the response I get, I will know six to eight problems that they have just by the answer to that one question. And I'll say that 90% or more of the time, the biggest problem I see is people don't know who their customer is. So when you look at why companies fail, they run out of money because they can't sell their product, product market fit. They can't sell their product because they don't know their customer well enough. So customer intimacy, lack of customer intimacy, lack of product market fit lack of cash flow or selling your product. Most people just
0: don't know who their customer is. For the folks listening, Eric, like, that seems like such a simplistic approach, but it's not. No, it's not. As a matter of fact, you know, we hear the
1: statement all the time, you need to know your customer better than anybody else. So what does that mean? Do I get on the phone? Do I talk with them every day? Do I drop in and say hi? No, that's about relationship building. And that's really critical to trust. But to understand your customer There are many, many very specific questions that you have to answer. And so we go through a whole process in the MIT approach on different ways to understand your customer at different stages of where they're at. We do a primary market research just to validate we're in the right market sector and the right end user profile before we ever do anything else. And once we figure out that, yes, there's a valid need and we're solving a problem in this market, then we move on to things like the full lifecycle use case. And there's 10 questions. How does the customer know they have a problem? How does the customer search for an answer? How does the customer find you? How does the customer analyze you against the competition? How do they make a decision to buy? How do they buy? How do they install? How do they use? All of these are very specific questions for every different customer. And
0: simplistic. There's a difference between simple and easy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's not rocket science. It's just a lot of work. And so one of the things I love to say is entrepreneurship is hard, but failure is harder. So it's worth the work to ensure success. And that's the other thing that I hear comment regularly This is a lot of work. And I'll say, yes.
0: You know, the guy says, I want to run my own business. So I'm a boss. Yeah. And you go, you haven't run a business before.
1: No. Yeah. You're a servant to everybody.
0: Yes. Before we shift into the part where I quiz you to death. For the folks that go, well, what about if I want to get trained by you domestically? How does that occur?
1: We do a lot of different kinds of training. So we do live training. We have courses regularly here in Colorado Springs that are open courses. We're willing to do them in other cities with partners, and we're looking at that now. We also do a lot of in-house courses, and we will come in and train your staff in-house. So right now, we have four courses that are up and running. We have more coming. The core is disciplined entrepreneurship. Second one is identity-driven entrepreneurship. We also do a course on curating, scaling, and managing culture from 30 years of culture management at very large scales, and also um, one on the DISC model of behavior, which is the most widely used model in the world for behavioral styles. So those are live courses. They're also online courses, self-paced. There's also a field facilitation package that we're building, and we've already got the disciplined entrepreneurship done where you can download those videos, take them into your company or take them into the field with the facilitation manual and train them anywhere in the world. So those are some of the ways that we train right now.
0: Specific how-to.
1: Yes. Very practical.
0: So much of, I think, business building, when you read a book, you know, you go like, okay, that's cool. I get it. But now what? You know, and it's the now what repeatable and scalable side. So
1: we're looking at different models right now. We do five basic things. Content, And we have a lot of free content and a lot more coming. We're just content rich right now. And then we're also doing a premium level, what we call the Entrepreneur's Club, which gives you access to all of our videos, all of our materials for a regular price. Courses, which I just mentioned. Coaching, which we're looking at some different coaching models and we're still evolving that. Capital and access to capital because we have a lot of people with money looking for the deals and community and this is where we're launching the other community part it's called the global entrepreneurship alliance gealliance.org we will not own that community we will power it and the community will own it so that's a new launch that will be coming up within the next few weeks actually and so we're building that out right now and that's for the community to connect on these different sectors in the or domains in the ecosystem and then creating groups and forums into tech sector group, agriculture group, or people that want to solve great big problems. And they can be local and they can be global. So all of that's coming as another opportunity as well. So those are the five things we do. Content, courses, coaching, capital, and community.
0: So for the folks going, how do I find you? Where do they find you on social media?
1: We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, the website. And I know there's a couple others. We have people running all of our social media stuff, but on Facebook, the best one that we post with every day, three to five articles a day on Facebook is Life Entrepreneurs with one E-L-I-F-E-N, Life Entrepreneurs on Facebook. I think it's Life Startups on Twitter. We have a LinkedIn account. We have an Instagram account. But the website is lifestartups with an S.com. Lifestartups.com.
0: Super. We'll shift gears here. For this part, most recent book or most influential book that you've read that's altered your perception about being a founder or CEO?
1: I think the Disciplined Entrepreneurship book by Bill Allett is probably the most significant book I've read relative to if you're going to start an organization, here's all the things that you need to think about. Once you launch, then the Scaling Up book by Vern Harnish. So those are two phenomenal books on understanding that entrepreneurship journey.
0: For you, looking back over time, what failure or at the time an apparent failure has served you or your company best or set you up for future achievement and why?
1: We had funds in eight countries and did a lot of microloans and microdevelopment, but we found that we just couldn't help the whole community. And our desire was really to see a larger scale change. Just as a side note, McKinsey Global Institute produced a study recently that said we could see 830 million jobs lost in the next 12 years by 2030. So that's a billion maybe in the next 15 years. And then another study showing that we're looking at about 100 million startups per year. So we're looking at this major economic shift from big companies to human-centered companies. And so what we learned was if we're really going to help society, we need to get into businesses that hire people and create wealth so we can have social impact and philanthropy in a totally different way and become very sustainable. So that was a big lesson for us. We were very successful. 73% sustainability on first-time startups is seven times the average, but we still weren't having a big impact. And so that's where we started looking at fast growth, scalable companies all over the world.
0: You know, if you could put an ad on page one, of maybe the local paper, when you go into a community like in Nepal, sharing the company message or advice, what would it say and why?
1: Wow, that's a good question. I'd love to think about that one more. I think about people in general. You were created to be creative. And society has a lot of problems. And the creative ability that each one has to unleash within us to help solve the problems of our world. You too can be an entrepreneur. Everyone can be an entrepreneur. Not everybody can lead the entrepreneurship team, but the creative capability that everybody has, everybody can be an entrepreneur so I think that's a big message is you were created to be an entrepreneur. How can we unlock that
0: potential? Well, you, know, you think about all the steps through your life that take that creative step out of you. Don't cross the line. Don't speed. I can remember as a little kid, be seen and not heard at the dinner table.
1: Oh, yeah. I think in education, because I do a lot on advanced learning skills and, and educational learning processes, especially for adults, because I still train in power plants how to learn fast. I think one of the studies showed, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but the creativity in children before they go to school by second grade, they've lost something like 80 percent of it.
0: I understand mainstreaming. You have a lot of people to get through the hoop. and You can't have 30 individuals in one room going in 30 different directions. But at the same time, I think about the simple thing of selling. Has anybody ever taught selling in school? Well, a lot of the business practices, that's why we're such
1: a proponent of taking entrepreneurship all the way down to kindergarten. You can do it. MIT is working with a group that's going into schools and starting to look at processes on how to train down into elementary schools.
0: And I think about the mind shift as a kid, I mowed yards as soon as I could see over the handles. The reward for doing it well is I had my own money to buy what I wanted to. Of course, I also had quality control. My father was an NCO, and he would come behind me and check my work. (laughs) It's it's an interesting thing,
1: too, though. One of the big things that we learned internationally as we worked all over the world was the damage giving people free stuff and what that did to destroying dignity, stifling creativity, getting rid of any concept of personal responsibility and ownership. So this concept of entitlement and an entitlement mentality is one that's learned because of what people are given as free stuff. And there's a lot of books on it now, Toxic Charity, Do No Harm, you know, those kinds of books that are out there. But we see it in our everyday life with our children, in our society, and yet we're all created to be creative. We're all created to be owners. We're all created to be responsible. And we've been trained to be otherwise. So we want to unlock and unleash and move people back into that original design of how we were created.
0: Yeah, you know, I've heard many times, X years old, and I shouldn't have to deal with this anymore. And you go, that's an entitlement issue. Why do you think that you're not supposed to do this? Broad brush commentary, and you know, and the part that I was really looking forward to chatting with you about, is people aren't trained to build their business. I have a biology major, what did that qualify me to do? If you could teach people how to build a business, start a business, entrepreneur, sell, you have a function inside a business in the college, I don't know that that's still being done today.
1: Well, entrepreneurship, too, is a very different training process. Entrepreneurs are very hands-on, get stuff done. And sitting in a classroom is very difficult and, and almost antithetical to what they think and believe. As a matter of fact, today, if you are a successful entrepreneur and you don't even have a high school education, you're even more of a hero. And by the way, the top startups today by a Kauffman Foundation study, age Group, 55 to 65. Education, less than high school. Number one.
0: Yeah, that's a different podcast. I think that's a different (laughs) podcast. For you, what was the best allocation of either time or initiative that's helped your company most?
1: The best allocation of time or initiative, investing 10% of your time into the future is a survival skill today. Because if you're not learning fast, you're going to be in trouble. The exponential rate of change today is so high that um, if you're not learning, you're already falling behind. I've heard a statement that knowledge on planet Earth today is doubling every 72 hours. So for you, what does that look like? There's a statistic out there that at 24 books a year, A-level players versus B-level players, A-level players read 24 or more books a year. So reading is a significant experience. I'm also a very uh, rapid learner. Not only do I read a lot, I'll listen to podcasts. I also scour the internet on stuff I'm interested in and will regularly download articles and read a lot. So it's all about bringing in new information, new perspectives. I think the other thing is diversity, engaging people that don't think like you do. Because if you don't do that, you get to be very one-sided in your thought process. And I think that's true in male and female as well. That we're engaging a lot of women in what we do because we believe they have a different perception of what we do as men. And I think that's very critical. So there's some of the core things of diversity and constant learning and being around people that challenge you and make you think.
0: It's that cross pollination event. It's exactly what it is.
1: Same thing is true with cultures internationally.
0: People are folks, you know, in the other business, they'll say, is the stock market different? This is different every day. What about the people in it? Nope. Just the same, (laughs) just the same. For you, what is your most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you or your company Uh, most?
1: Well, I'm a machine in many ways. I'll work 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day, seven days a week. And people will go, well, how can you work that much? And my response is, I'm not really working. See, if you love what you do, You'll spend time doing the things that you love. And so my wife and I have a very good relationship. Uh, we just celebrated 41 years. Or good sense of humor. Or yeah, both. Well, both. <laughs> but we work really well together. We understand each other really well. Now, I take regular breaks. We do a lot of different things. But I'm a workaholic in many ways. But when you look at work-life balance, what works for one couple or one group may not work for another. I think that Most people that know me think I'm crazy because of how much I work. But again, I love what I do. I mean, what I'm doing in the Leadership Institute for Entrepreneurs is a convergence of what I call the Ikigai model that we actually teach. Ikigai is a term out of Japan that talks about four things. What do you love to do? What are you good at? What can you get paid for? And what does the world need? And in that is a blend of profession, vocation, passion, and mission. And when they converge, you find out why you get up in the morning. So we take people through that process in our identity-driven entrepreneurship course. But I know mine. I know why I get up. Every day I'm thinking about these things because we want to serve people and entrepreneurs to make life better all over the world. So I spent a lot of time focused on that.
0: Nothing wrong with that. Over the past three years, what belief or protocol have you established in the company that's most impacted the success of your company?
1: We are uh, very high on get it done and now and get it done right. So the whole idea of fast, flexible, adaptable, pivot, learn, grow, fail, keep moving. Again, it comes back to that learning culture. We're very action-oriented and very learning
0: minded. In that process, when you make a mistake, not you or you, anybody in the organization, there's a lot of folks that get stuck in a mistake. What do you guys do to say, all right, if we're gonna have a mistake, what did we learn from it? How do we profit from yeah. it? Well, we way? actually celebrate failure.
1: I show an article from WD 40, that company. They give two round the world trip tickets to the ones with the biggest failure in the company. What a different mindset. And of course. Mindset by Carol Dweck out of Stanford talks a lot about this mindset of anti-fragile. In today's world, there's a high failure in entrepreneurship startups. The reality is failure is part of life and failure is the price for learning. So we are constantly, okay, what did we learn from that? What did we learn from that? What did we learn from that? What are we going to do different? How are we going to try something else? We view it as a very valuable thing, not something to be shunned. Or something have negative penalties. We view them as very valuable experiences. You've probably heard the story about an old story about IBM, where a guy made a million dollar mistake, and they went into his boss and said, "You know, we lost a million dollars because this guy was going to fire him." And the boss said, "I
0: paid a million dollars for that lesson. Why would we fire him now?" It's the repetitive same mistake that's the challenge. That's correct. That's a system not learning. What advice would you offer to a new CEO or founder that's assuming the role of CEO for the first time? Read the book
1: Disciplined Entrepreneurship or come to our course and understand if the business is viable, sustainable, profitable, and scalable before you spend the next three to five years of your life working on it. And by doing so, if there are challenges, you're taking over a business and there are problems, you know exactly why those problems exist. So you'll focus on fixing specific solutions. Remember, the biggest problem is to know what the problem is.
0: It'd be interesting, the the family corporations, first, second, third generation, Mm, well, first and second, maybe. I don't know about third. I have one group that is third. You know, and you think about the skill set differential inside of a family, there's going to be variations and you go, how do you teach the family the core competency of business to celebrate the differentials? And
1: I come back to talking about the Disciplined Entrepreneurship book, which is core competencies. But let me say something about families right now, because I'm a high proponent of hiring family, which you'll hear people talk about. Don't do that at all. My response to that is you train them to the level of their capability and use them to their gifting and purpose. So find their place of fit and keep developing them. The friends that I have, the Herschen Family Entertainment, uh, Peter Herschen out of Branson, Missouri, they made their children go through every facet of the organization before they became leaders of the organizations. So they made them learn, learn, learn every part of the organization, but then put them in places where they were gifted and equipped.
0: But they understand. That's correct. I pushed the broom. I've cleaned up. Exactly right. Peter did that. It
1: was a wonderful thing just to watch them build the company that they have and pass it on to their family. So I'm high proponent of doing family, but spend a lot of time training them and put them in their place of gifting. And don't promote them beyond their capability.
0: Set them up for failure. That's right. That's a hard. Oh, it is. One for the family to do. And it's hard for that family member. What if you're the world's best E6 artillery guy? You're not going to be the master sergeant. What's the most common misconception about you or your role as CEO?
1: In our business, it's about the fact that we just do training programs where we do a whole lot more in this entrepreneurship journey and the ecosystem. I think the other thing I mentioned earlier everyone's an entrepreneur, but not everyone can lead an entrepreneurship initiative. The weight of leadership and being the final decision maker and having the lives of people that work for you as part of your responsibility. I don't think that's something you can understand without doing it. It's kind of like having kids. You can babysit all you want, but until you have your own, you do not understand what it takes to raise a child.
0: Well, that's like jumping out of an airplane.
1: And so I think the biggest misconception or lack of understanding is the pressure and the weight of the position. And you don't know that until you do that. And then it's overwhelming.
0: Over the past three years, would or should you have said no to?
1: One of the things that's common, and it happens even with us, is that um, when you go after a target market, and the the reason that you segment your market when you launch a business is because you have limited time and resources. Different markets require different solutions. The whole key in success of an early stage business is a customized solution to a very specific market so you have a 100% solution because people talk about an 80% solution, but they don't buy it. And so the biggest problem is to go after or service markets that are not in your market segment. It's okay if they show up and you don't have to do anything else to serve them, but it's not okay to start building solution sets for different markets. That's the number one reason you're going to fail is you're going to dilute your focus on your primary market. So I regularly work with companies that are already running. And I love working with companies that are already running because now we can just go right in and focus on what the problem is. And so I had a company that had five different income streams and one income stream brought in 66% of the revenue. Focus all your energy there.
0: It sounds really apparent, you know, which is the one that brought you to the dance. Yeah, but I like this one over here. Yeah, but what about this one? You see it time and time again. It's got to be human nature. Yeah,
1: I think it's human nature. And most sales organizations and management cannot comprehend the idea of don't just sell to everybody that wants to buy. So you're a sales driven organization. And the reality is to be successful, you have to focus on a segmented market with a customized solution, win market share, and then do market expansion or market penetration or product line expansion.
0: Yeah, the old riches in the niches comment. I think most people don't really get that either. In the day-to-day operation of your company, CEO, what is your personal habit or self-talk that keeps you and the company focused?
1: Yeah, self-talk, I mean, There's so much about entrepreneurship that is emotionally up and down in the roller coaster. One day you suck and the next day you're taking on the world and and everything's rosy. And the next day you look like you're going to not make it. Um, And so for me, the thing that keeps me going is to come back to this identity driven entrepreneurship, this concept of ikigai. I-K-I-G-A-I, that I know why I get up in the morning. So when I have really tough days and you have them as a leader, my response to myself is, so what are you going to go do? You were created for this. Everything that you are converges in this. What else are you going to do? You can't quit because you'd be walking away from what you were created to be. And I think a lot of people don't have that. And that's why they're always self-guessing. That's why they're always on the border of, should I quit? Should I keep on going?
0: The guys that run toward retirement. Yeah. I've got you know, no two purpose. years, three months, and five days till I retire. Exactly. And you go, God, you must hate your job. Of
1: course, we know the statistics are very high in that. I saw a recent article, 70-something percent in America, 80-something percent in China do not love what they do. And then even the concept of retirement itself. So does that mean lack of purpose? You know, do you just wander around doing nothing? You know how many people crash and burn, die because they have no purpose in life once they retire?
0: I'm on the feet first retirement plan. I'm going to die in a job. That's right. People look at you like you have grown another head. And for you, it's hard to understand. Really, you kind of go, how far down the road can you do your job that you don't like? And you have choice. And the other big issue, and of course, this is a huge one, Bob, today. And this is a
1: big discussion what I have with millennials. It would be very difficult today to make enough money in your lifetime to retire if you're going to retire. And for me, retirement is do what I want when I want because I have the money to do that. So it's not stopping working. But the reality is today, if you don't start a company and own it or own equity in a company, having a retirement vehicle is a very limited opportunity because pension plans and retirement funds and all of that very limited in what they're gonna produce for you when you look at this late stage retirement of, I can do what I want when I want. And so not retirement, but having flexibility. And it's hard to save enough money to do that. So ownership or equity are big issues relative to having the finances down the road.
0: I saw some statistic, it was either 80 or 90% of the folks worth more than 20 million are business owners. Wow, it doesn't surprise me. It kind of goes so note to self. So how do I get there? for me, I was math, pre-med and biology and chemistry and that stuff. What does one do with that? I never took an econ class, never took a business class.
1: Oh, I could give you about 100 ideas. (laughs) But,
0: you know, you think about that in the school. And so it's an interesting training ground. And I don't think that we get that much training. You have to go find your mentor.
1: You have to understand that in today it's not about what do you want to do. It's about what problem are you passionate about solving and who has pain and urgency to solve that problem?
0: Because they don't have the money to solve the problem.
1: Yeah, you don't have a business, do you have a paying customer?
0: There's a good quote.
1: Well, there's a number of them. That one, you don't have a business, do you have a paying customer? Customer intimacy is the key to success. I think those are very important concepts. The best customer is the one you already have. Which goes into a lot of financials of cost of customer acquisition and lifetime value of a customer for your financials and your build out. I love Mark Twain's statement, the two most important days of your life, because really that's what drives everything. The day you're born, the day you find out why. If you find out why and who are you in all of your assets and gifts and skills and talents, is your destiny and your purpose. And you don't have to wait till you're lying on your deathbed to look back and go, oh, now I understand. You can take that look back at any time and start to understand what you were created to be and do. So I think that quote by Mark Twain is such a key one.
0: I have been harassing you for a while now, so I'll wind this up. If colleagues were asked what you're best at, what would they say and how do you utilize this strength on a day-to-day basis?
1: You know, I talk about my gift is really two things and people say that as well. One is the ability to assimilate a lot of data. That's why I'm constantly learning and getting data. And then what does that mean into a picture? And then the skill set to operationally architect solutions. So I call myself an operational architect. And that's really one of the biggest things I'm known for. Whatever the vision is, wherever we're trying to go, whatever we're trying to do, what's the operational architecture that will make that work? And I love to architect it and work with people to architect it as a crowdsource solution. But then I don't like to run it after we build it.
0: We'll go to the next one. (laughs) I understand. Well, Mike, can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming down. This has been fun. And I wish you great success and safe travels as you go out and try to ding the planet. Thanks, Bob.
1: Really enjoyed being with you and look forward to further discussions.